Seven people are dead after a pair of related shootings outside of San Francisco, the latest in a series of mass shootings in California over the last week. It's Tuesday, January 24th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the most recent gun violence in California has lawmakers there calling for action. There are simply too many guns in this country, and there has to be a change. This is not an acceptable way for a modern society to live its and conduct its affairs. Also, four members of the far-right Oath Keepers group are convicted for their roles in the January 6th insurrection. And this hour... Only crash the train once, okay? Then after we get the film developed, you can watch it crash over and over till it's not so scary anymore. That's a scene from The Fablemans. It's one of the movies expected to get several Oscar nominations when they're announced today. In sports, the Celtics lose sunny and in the 30s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Authorities in Southern California say another person has died as a result of Saturday's shooting at a dance hall. NPR's Nathan Rott reports all of those killed were in their 50s, 60s, or 70s. The death toll of the shooting now stands at 11, after a woman in her 70s who had been wounded in the incident succumbed to her injuries. Officials are slowly releasing the names of the other victims as they're able to reach and notify family members. The dance hall where the shooting occurred was popular with older and middle-aged Asian Americans and Asian immigrants here in Monterey Park. Officials are still searching for a motive and investigating the relationship of the deceased gunman, 72-year-old Hu Can Tran, with the dance venue itself. Nathan Rapp, NPR News, Monterey Park. A second mass shooting in Northern California has left seven people dead and another person injured. Some of the victims were of Asian descent and killed at two locations in San Mateo County on the outskirts of the city of Half Moon Bay. San Mateo County Sheriff Christina Corpus says the suspect, Chun Li Zhao, has been arrested. At 4.40 p.m., Zhao was located in his vehicle in the parking lot of the sheriff's substation here in Half Moon Bay by a sheriff's deputy. Zhao was taken into custody without incident and a semi-autic handgun was located in his vehicle. No motive for the shooting is yet known. The White House Counsel's Office says it is reviewing requests from the Republican chair of the House Oversight Committee about President Biden's handling of classified documents. NPR's Asma Khalid reports this comes as the White House continues to defend how Biden and his team have dealt with the situation. The letter from the White House counsel says we look forward to engaging in good faith regarding your requests and we'll reach out to arrange a time to discuss. The letter also points to Biden's cooperation on the matter, specifically the FBI search of his house on Friday. Ian Sams is a White House spokesman. The president's uh, personal lawyers at the direction of the president offered for the Justice Department to come uh, to his house uh, and conduct a thorough search of every room in the house uh, to ensure that any material that should be in the possession of the government is in possession of the government. But the White House won't say if other similar searches will be conducted at the president's beach house or elsewhere. Asma Khalid, NPR News. A federal jury in Washington, D.C. convicted four members of the far-right group, the Oath Keepers, on several counts. These include the rarely used seditious conspiracy charge for their roles in the January 6th attack. This is the second group of Oath Keepers members to be convicted on federal charges. The group's founder, Stuart Rhodes, and a top deputy were found guilty of seditious conspiracy last November. You're listening to NPR News. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade has been bittersweet for abortion rights advocates. The landmark Supreme Court decision was overturned last year, and many states now ban or severely restrict abortion. But healthcare providers in Boston still found reason to celebrate the anniversary. WBUR's Priyanka Dayal McCluskey explains. Dr. Alyssa Goldberg is a family planning specialist at Brigham and Women's Hospital. She says it's important to remember Roe, even though it's gone. It is in recognition of a time where government and policy put the health, the lives, and the welfare of women first. Women and and people who can get pregnant. Goldberg says she's hopeful that policies will change so more people across the country have access to abortion. For now, some patients from states as far away as Texas, where abortion is restricted, are seeking care in Massachusetts, where it's legal. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. Boston does not have enough buses to serve the needs of its residents. That's according to a new report from the Cambridge-based Livable Streets Alliance and the New York-based Institute for Transportation and Development Policy. It finds that in the past 50 years, the population of the Boston area grew more than 50 percent, while its bus fleet decreased. The Boston Herald reports the group suggests the T add at least 200 buses and hire around 700 more drivers to solve the issue. Leaders from the state legislature and the governor's office are getting together today for the first consensus revenue hearing of the Healy administration. They'll hear from economists and budget analysts as they try to estimate how much tax revenue the state will take in during the next fiscal year. That figure will be used to help craft the governor's first state budget. That budget is due March 1st. Boston City officials are pushing for the city to host the 2026 NBA All-Star Game. City councilors say it would bring a much-needed economic boost to Boston's downtown. The last time the city hosted an NBA All-Star Game was in 1964. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource, a proud sponsor of Mass Save, Energy-saving solutions for your business, no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. The Celtics lost to the Magic 113-98 last night in Orlando. The Seas will visit the Miami Heat tonight. Also tonight, the Bruins visit the Montreal Canadiens. Sunny today with a high in the mid to upper 30s. It might get a bit windy at times, partly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will be in the 20s. Increasing clouds tomorrow with a chance of snow in the afternoon. We could get another inch or so before it turns to rain. High in the mid 30s. Right now it's 32 degrees in Boston at 707. WBUR supporters include the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're waking to news of another mass shooting in California. Yeah, days after the attack on a dance hall, a different gunman opened fire in different locations. He was in Half Moon Bay, a coastal community just south of San Francisco. He opened fire at a plant nursery and at a mushroom farm and killed seven people. 
NPR's Eric Westerfeld is covering this story. Eric, who did this? Good morning, Steve. The San Mateo County Sheriff says the gunman is 67-year-old named Shunli Zhao. He's a local resident. The killing spanned two separate farm locations near each other. He allegedly killed four and gravely wounded a fifth at a plant nursery complex near a small shopping area right off the highway. He then killed three others at another location on a farm about two miles down the road. Uh, It's believed he worked at the nursery where he opened fire. Police found Zhao in his car in the parking lot of a sheriff's substation. So he basically went on a killing spree and then drove to a police station and gave himself in. Mm. He was taken into custody without incident. Police found a semi-automatic handgun in his car. Uh, A local official said the gunman was a disgruntled worker at one of the farms, but Sheriff Christina Corpus says there's no known motive at this time. This kind of shooting is horrific. It's a tragedy that we hear about far too often, but today it's hit home here in San Mateo County. Eric, you said a semi-automatic pistol. Isn't that the same type of weapon that was described in the Monterey Park shooting a few days ago? Well, Steve, we don't know yet if it was the exact same weapon, but it certainly is a similar type of a high-powered semi-automatic weapon. Who were the victims? The seven killed are all believed to be farm workers at this mushroom farm and nursery greenhouse complex. A local council member says all were Chinese farm workers. The sheriff wouldn't comment on that. Some of the workers live there at the farm, Steve. So it's believed children witnessed the killings and almost certainly heard the shootings. It's a small, close-knit agricultural community. Here's Joaquin Jimenez, the vice mayor of Half Moon Bay. We have been receiving phone calls, text messages from family members wanting to know information, either family members, you know, their relatives are okay. We hope they are. Eric, I began reading a news story about one of California's mass killings and mistakenly thought for a moment it was about the other California mass killing. How are people responding to all this violence in so few days? Well, it's interesting. California Governor Gavin Newsom tweeted something similar, that he was at the hospital meeting with victims of the Southern California mass shooting when he got word and was briefed about this one to the north. He decried it as, quote, a tragedy upon tragedy. And we heard from David Pine. He's the head of the San Mateo County Board of Supervisors who said, you know, he's sickened by all this, that Californians hadn't been able to even start to grieve those killed in the South when they were hit with another shooting spree. Our hearts are broken. We are deeply grateful for law enforcement for their work this evening. But in the end, there are simply too many guns in this country. And there has to be a change. This is not an acceptable way for modern society to live and conduct its affairs. And Steve, we should know California has some of the strictest gun laws on the books in the nation, but there are all kinds of loopholes. There are some enforcement problems and challenges. There are illegal workarounds, including going to a gun show in a neighboring state like Nevada to try to skirt California's registration or background check laws. So bottom line, the state's gun laws have not stopped these mass killings. NPR's Eric Westervelt, thanks so much. You're welcome. Let's follow up now with the president of the San Mateo County Board of Supervisors, who we heard a moment ago. Democrat Dave Pine spoke with A. Martinez. We hear about mass shootings in this country almost every day, but we could never think that one would happen in our own backyard, and particularly in such a close-knit and small community like Half Moon Bay. What does your community need right now? Well, right now we're reaching out to the community with mental health services and trying to help the, uh, the, the families as best we can and trying to make sense of this, what is absolutely senseless act. California, I know, has some of the toughest uh, gun laws. Uh, what has been done on the local level in San Mateo County to attempt to prevent gun violence as best as possible? 
We have a strong uh, gun storage ordinance that requires people to keep weapons under lock. Uh, we are investing uh, funds into going after uh, you know people with red flag status, people who are felons and others who are not allowed to have guns and making sure that we get the guns out of their hands. And we've been very active in doing gun buybacks as well. So we really are trying to use every tool available to us to limit gun violence. And now we see this. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, that's what I was going to ask you too, considering everything you have done to, to see this happen in your own community where you've tried your best. I mean, is it deflating? Is it just heartbreaking? What, what are you feeling? Well, it is heartbreaking. It is discouraging, but it's also a call out to the federal government to do more on the federal level. We simply have too many guns in this nation. We have more guns than people. And the research has shown that uh, we're unique in the world in, in gun violence, and it's really attributable to the total number of guns that are available. So when people are in crisis, uh, they often have access to a gun. So we have to make sure guns are better regulated. If you could talk to the representatives that, that are in California, that are around the nation, that are hearing you right now, I mean, what would you tell them? What's your message to them today? You know, we need common sense gun regulation in this country to make sure people are, are licensed, that they're trained, and that people who shouldn't have guns do not have access to them. I mean, considering that the state of California has some of the more tougher gun laws on the record in the United States to have two shootings like this within a, within a few days of each other, I mean, that's, I mean, I know you're suffering in your county, but can you just California, the state that supposedly is the leader in gun control, and this happens. Yeah, we are the leader, and the statistics shows that the laws and legislation that we've passed at the state and local level have made a difference compared to other states in the country. So our efforts have helped, but it's not perfect. And there are certain things, particularly with the regulation of assault weapons, that are in the hands of uh, the federal government that we need help from. Is there anything, Dave, that you'd just like to tell your community, especially right now when, when they're suffering at the moment? Well, we mourn the loss of these innocent people. You know, we, we look forward to a day when we don't have to be living in fear of, of gun violence in our community and in the country. That's Dave Pine, president of the San Mateo County Board of Supervisors. Dave, thank you very much. Thank you. For months now, many analysts and experts who study the economy have told us to expect a recession. Inflation has been high, some industries are cutting costs and laying off thousands of people preparing for harder times. But Mark Zandi says now some signs point the other way. He's the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Layla. So what evidence suggests that we might be okay? Well, it all boils down to inflation. Mm -hmm. uh, inflation has been a, our number one problem. The Fed Reserve has been raising interest rates very aggressively in an effort to quell that inflation. And we're getting some good news there. Um, we're seeing oil prices down, natural gas, other commodity prices. The uh, economy's doing a good job adjusting to the Russian invasion of Ukraine earlier in the year that's the cause of uh, the higher, uh, previously higher oil prices. We're also getting good news out of China. They're uh, ending their no COVID policy, and that's key to supply chains and getting prices down for a lot of products that got disrupted during the pandemic. And 
I guess also important is wage growth in certain parts of the economy is starting to moderate, and that's really important uh, with regard to service price infla- inflation, inflation in sectors that are very labor-intensive, like healthcare and hospitality. So mm-hmm. lots of good news on the inflation front, and that's key to keeping interest rates from rising much more, and that's key to avoiding recession. So if it's not a recession, what is it? I mean, we're completely out of the woods? Uh, good question. Uh, you know, it's important not to be Pollyannish here. I mean, it's mm-hmm. going to be a tough year dead ahead. So uh, some people have been calling it a soft landing. That just doesn't feel like an apt description of what's dead ahead of us. It's going to be uncomfortable at times. So not a recession. We're not going backwards, but uh, it feels like an economy that's going nowhere fast. So I call it a slow session. A slow session. If inflation is fading, as you mentioned, does that mean the Federal Reserve can just stop raising interest rates at this point? Uh, I, I don't think they're going to stop now. They've mm-hmm. got uh, they've told markets and investors and everybody else that they're going to raise rates at least a couple more times. So I think they'll follow through on that. But the good news, Layla, is I think that will be the end of it. So a couple more rate hikes, quarter point each time, that would put the funds rate target, the interest rate they control at 5%. And I think that uh, should, should do it. Uh, and if that's the case, then we've got a really good chance of getting through this without going into recession. And what does that mean for regular people? I mean, right now we're seeing these layoffs, uh, these cost-cutting measures to get ready for a possible recession. Does that mean that will stop? Well, well, well layoffs are actually quite low. I mean, you, they're high in the tech sector, mm-hmm. uh, parts of financial services, media, you know, we're seeing it. Uh, but in across the economy, uh, layoffs are about as low as they've ever been. Uh, I, I would expect them to pick up. Uh, you know, the, again, the economy's not going to get through this uh, without some struggles. So we'll see higher layoffs. But I don't think we're going to get the kind of layoffs that would be consistent with lots of job loss, Mm -hmm. and that would be recession. So it's going to be uncomfortable, uh, more layoffs, but not something that uh, is consistent with lots of uh, lost jobs and much higher unemployment. What about the U.S. debt limit? I mean, right now the House Republicans are threatening not to pay the U.S. debt limit. Is it possible then that our own government could provoke a recession? Yeah, great point. You know, the, the economy is going to be vulnerable uh, in the next 12, 18 months. And to get through without a downturn, we, we need a little bit of luck. Uh, we can't uh, get hit by another shock like the pandemic or the mm-hmm. Russian invasion. And a breach of the debt limit, which is you know coming up here this summer, if we actually uh, stop at the Treasury uh, and the government stops paying its bills on time, that would be uh, a big shock. Uh, and it would even in a in a strong economy, it would push us into recession. Uh, given the vulnerable economy that we're, we're living with, uh, that would be very catastrophic. So lawmakers got to get this done on time. Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we'll learn about the Welcome Corps, a newly launched group of organizations across the U.S. that's helping refugees resettle. It's 719. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solution simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. More and more organizations are requiring diversity, equity, and inclusion training, but is it effective and how do we measure whether it works? If I try to go into an ecosystem from the top down and say, this is the truth from on high without their input, it's gonna fail. Cause that's just not how ecosystems work. I'm Anthony Brooks. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It seems like Beverly's Schubert the Seal has inspired others to do some exploring. Police in Cape Elizabeth, Maine, found a seal exploring a neighborhood during yesterday's snowstorm. The seal was committed to its adventure. It was returned to the ocean several times and kept coming back. It was finally taken to a rehab center where it's being looked at and cared for. Mostly sunny and windy today with a high near 38. Tonight, partly cloudy and a low around 26. Tomorrow starts mostly cloudy with a high of 34. After about 5 p.m., snow is likely with less than an inch of accumulation expected by evening. And we may see another inch of snowfall overnight before it turns to rain. Right now it's 32 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Charles Schwab. With a variety of financial planning options, from online tools to meeting with a financial consultant, Schwab works to make it easy to plan for tomorrow, today. More at schwab.com plan. And from Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft, used by millions globally. Learn more at keepernpr.com. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. The Biden administration is inviting Americans to play a direct role in helping stem the refugee crisis. Welcome Corps is a new policy that allows private citizens to sponsor displaced people from around the world right in their own communities with help from nonprofit organizations. Alight is one such group. Because we speak the same language as the refugees, we can understand their needs better. And because we have that insider perspective, we can share it with the American sponsors so that they kind of have that insights as well. That's Anatoly Cheredinichenko, who serves as a guide with a light to identify and train potential American sponsors. It's been incredible. We've been talking to multiple sponsors about their ongoing experiences. They just feel like the citizens of the world. So for them, it doesn't matter whether um, it's Ukraine or whether there is a crisis in Afghanistan. They feel like they want to step up and help whoever is experiencing this crisis because in the end of the day we all share the same land we all live in the same planet and seeing that kind of cosmopolitan perspective in americans we're working with is truly incredible because you understand how many good people are here in the world we just need to identify them and work with them so that they feel supported i asked light ceo jocelyn wyatt about what she hears are the biggest concerns from people thinking about becoming refugee sponsors 
they really want to make sure that they're doing well by the family that is arriving and that they're going to be able to provide for their needs. Our guides often want to make sure that people have beyond the basic needs of housing and food and health care, but that they really have a sense of belonging and connection and are able to build really strong relationships both with the sponsor groups, but also with other diaspora communities and the broader local community that they're resettling into. So when a potential sponsor asks, okay, so what's involved here? What am I looking forward to? What do you tell them? Yeah, so for the new program with Welcome Corps, the requirement is financial support of $2,275 per refugee that the sponsor group needs to be able to commit. In addition to that, it's three months of support which includes everything from meeting the family at the airport and bringing them to the new house or apartment where they'll be living, getting kids into school, making sure that they have the appropriate clothing and furniture and everything that they need, that they are helping connect them with jobs, getting them enrolled in English language classes, and really connecting to a broader community so that they are able to build those relationships and feel like this new place is home for them where they can imagine really amazing future for themselves and their families going forward. And we're talking about refugees. Yes, I mean, these are people that have gone through some pretty stressful, if not life-threatening situations. Is there any kind of training in terms of how the potential sponsors need to be around the people that they're taking in? Absolutely. So part of the training program that Alight offers to the sponsor groups is around understanding the psychosocial support that's needed. We run programs in psychological first aid, but also have opportunities for referral for mental health resources um, through professionals as well, because we understand the trauma that people have experienced and take that really seriously. And I'm guessing it's a lot different to feel compassion for refugees that you see on the news every single night, but it's a much different story when they're actually in the room sitting next to you and living there. That's right. Everyone that we talk to who has had the opportunity to connect with the new arrivals or serve as a sponsor has told us that the experience has been absolutely transformative for themselves and their families. They're seeing that this is a real opportunity to enrich communities in the U.S. through bringing in more diversity, people from different cultural backgrounds, to bring in people that can productively work and serve in jobs in this country um, where we have a real need for labor force. It sounds like a wonderful opportunity to share cultures, Jocelyn. I'll be honest, I'm thinking food. I mean, you could, yeah. you could share recipes and how to make food you know, and dishes that maybe you wouldn't have had before. Absolutely. We see plenty of that, which is sort of sharing these cooking lessons. We see sharing music. We've seen Afghan women who are teaching music classes to Minnesotan women and children. So how long do you anticipate the process to take for a refugee applicant from start to finish? We're hoping to receive the first new arrivals through the Welcome Corps program in April. And so we are currently recruiting people that want to sign up as sponsors. And as we do that, Welcome Corps will be matching those sponsor groups with the refugees, many of whom have been waiting years, if not decades, for resettlement. Many of the people that will be in the first wave to participate in this program are 
refugees that Alight has worked with for decades in, in places like Rwanda, where we're serving Congolese refugees, for instance. And so this is such an incredible opportunity to really start to transition folks out of refugee camps into more resettle permanent resettlement opportunities in a country like the United States, where so many refugees have such a strong desire to uh, move to and resettle in. Comparing the current presidential administration to the one previous, what kind of a shift does this initiative then demonstrate in terms of how the U.S. is trying to deal with uh, the immigration crisis? This is a huge shift from the previous administration. There are a number of efforts that this administration has launched, um, Welcome Corps being the most recent of them. But this is really amazing opportunity for the U.S. to see what it looks like for us to be the type of country that, that welcomes in refugees, that's able to provide safe haven and opportunity and a pathway to a, a rich and desirable future for people that have experienced such trauma, have experienced such hardship in their lives. And so this is a moment for America to be as generous as we know that we can be as a country. That's Jocelyn Wyatt, CEO of Alight. Jocelyn, thanks. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, four members of the far-right Oath Keepers group have been convicted on seditious conspiracy charges in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. And this year's Oscar nominations will be announced today among the expected contenders for Best Picture, Top Gun, Maverick, Avatar, The Way of Water, and The Fablemans. It's 729. Join us tomorrow night for coverage of Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's first State of the City address. It's expected to focus on housing costs, transportation, and crime. Our coverage and analysis will begin tomorrow night at 7. You can listen on air at 90.9 online or on the new WBUR mobile app. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Police in Northern California say they believe the same gunman was responsible for separate shootings yesterday that left seven people dead. The shootings occurred at agricultural nurseries not far from each other in the coastal town of Half Moon Bay. It's about 30 miles south of San Francisco. Those killed are identified as employees. The 67-year-old suspected gunman worked at one of the businesses. The man was arrested after authorities say he was discovered sitting in his vehicle at a San Mateo Sheriff's Office substation. In Southern California, police say an 11th person has died of their injuries sustained in Saturday's shooting at a dance studio in Monterey Park. That attack occurred during Lunar, Lunar New Year's celebrations. The suspected gunman was later found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He was identified as a 72-year-old Asian man. California Governor Gavin Newsom voiced his frustration and anger about these latest attacks. 
only in America. And we're better than that. We're supposed to be leading the world, not just responding to these mass crises. Last week, six people were shot to death at a house in Central California in what investigators described as executions linked to a drug cartel or gangs. This year's Oscar nominations are due out next hour in Beverly Hills, California. This is NPR News. A judge in Georgia is expected to hear arguments today on whether to release the findings of a special grand jury. The panel examined efforts by then-President Trump and others to overturn the results of the 2020 election in that state. As Sam Greenglass with member station WABE reports from Atlanta, the report could also contain recommendations for criminal prosecution. One year ago, Fulton County Prosecutor Fawnie Willis asked a judge to impanel a special grand jury. Willis told the judge that she believed the 2020 election in Georgia had been subject to possible criminal disruptions. The probe was spurred in part by Trump's call to Georgia's Secretary of State, pressuring him to, quote, find 11,780 votes. It's also examined plans to organize a fake slate of electors for Trump and other attempts to interfere with the election. The special grand jury's final report may include recommendations for criminal charges, but Willis would still need to ask a standing grand jury to bring any indictments. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Poland's defense minister says his government is officially requesting permission from Germany to send its German-built Leopard 2 military tanks to Ukraine. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is in Berlin today, where he's been pressing Germany to send its tanks to Kyiv. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A lot of people are still feeling the effects of yesterday's snowstorm, and it's more than just needing a few extra minutes this morning to scrape your car off. The state reports just under 17,000 power customers are still without electricity right now. Some of the biggest outages are in Gardner, Westminster, and Lunenburg. Because of the slick conditions, Worcester Public Schools will open two hours late today. The Worcester Regional Transit Authority will cut back on service each Friday. That's because of a shortage of drivers. The transit agency says the shortage is being caused by the number of drivers using paid family and medical leave. The cuts on Friday will affect more than 100 trips on eight different routes. But those cuts will, again, only be on Fridays. Former President Donald Trump plans to visit New Hampshire over the weekend. Trump will be the keynote speaker at the state Republican Party's annual meeting. That'll be his first visit to New Hampshire since 2020 and since declaring that he'll run in the 2024 race. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. The Celtics' nine-game winning streak ended last night in Orlando. The Seas lost to the Magic 113-98. The Celtics will play the Heat tonight in Miami. The Bruins begin a six-game road trip tonight as they visit the Montreal Canadiens. Upper 30s and windy today under mostly sunny skies. Tonight, clouds move in and temperatures fall as low as the mid-20s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, mid-30s and still windy. Around about 5 p.m., we're expected to see another round of snow. It'll continue until about 11 and then turns to rain. In all, we should see up to two inches of accumulation. Right now, it's 32 degrees in Boston at 735. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Falden. Good morning. The Justice Department is racking up some important court victories related to its January 6th investigation. On Monday, a federal jury in Washington, D.C. convicted four members of the far-right Oath Keepers of seditious conspiracy for their role in the Capitol attack. And a separate jury convicted a man whose picture went viral during the riot. NPR Justice correspondent Carrie Johnson has been spending a lot of time at the courthouse, and she's here now to talk through these developments. Good morning, Carrie. Good morning, Leila. So let's start with the Oath Keepers case. How big a deal are these convictions? This is a big deal. History is unfolding every day in the courthouse as the Justice Department tries to hold the people responsible for January 6th to account and demonstrate that the legal system can work for all its flaws and challenges. And remind us what seditious conspiracy is, what it means in connection to the attack on the U.S. Capitol. It involves an attempt to overthrow the government by using force, and it's one of the more serious charges the Justice Department can bring. Historically, it's pretty hard to win these cases, but a jury in D.C. just convicted several more Oath Keepers, leaders, and associates, and Attorney General Merrick Garland addressed the verdict yesterday. All four defendants were found guilty of seditious conspiracy, as well as conspiracy to obstruct the certification of the Electoral College vote, and to prevent members of Congress from discharging their duties. Now, when the defendants are sentenced later this year, they could face many years in prison, but the judge has allowed them to remain free for now on 24-hour home confinement. And these are the second batch of Oath Keepers to be convicted. The group's founder, Stuart Rhodes, was found guilty last November. Now, not too long before those convictions, there was another verdict in that federal courthouse just down the street from the Capitol building. Tell us more about that case. Sure. One of the lasting images from January 6th was the photo of an Arkansas man with his feet up on a desk in Nancy Pelosi's office. His name is Richard Barnett, and he testified in the trial, but the jury didn't buy his account. They took only about two hours to find him guilty of eight charges that include obstruction of an official proceeding and carrying a dangerous weapon. Barnett's lawyer says they didn't get a fair trial because D.C. is so heavily Democratic, but that argument hasn't gotten much momentum in the court at least not yet, partly because January 6th made headlines not just here in D.C., but across the country and the world. Now, we've got the Oath Keepers, this rioter who put his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk, but there's also another big case moving through the court related to the attack on the Capitol. What's happening there? This is the trial of Enrique Tarrio and several members of another far-right group, the Proud Boys. They're all charged with sedition as well. That case is moving in stops and starts. The jury's heard from Capitol Police Inspector and a filmmaker who spent a lot of time with Tarrio. Two other defendants in that case are pretty noteworthy. One's Joe Biggs, who used to work for the conspiracy-paddling site InfoWars and played a role in recent congressional hearings. And the other is Dominic Pizzola. 
People might remember him because he allegedly busted out windows in the Capitol on January 6th and allowed hundreds of other people to pour into the building. Prosecutors say the Proud Boys took aim at the heart of democracy and that they allegedly conspired to use other people in the crowd as a weapon to target Congress. Of course, the defendants say there was no plan to assault the Capitol, and they say that prosecutors are using Tario as a scapegoat because he's a lot easier to charge than the former president, Donald Trump. Speaking of Donald Trump, what is the latest on the investigation into him? What more do we know? The Justice Department's been tight-lipped, but there's been a lot of action before the grand jury. The special counsel's investigating that, of course, and also the documents uh, discovered at Trump's resort Mar-a-Lago and documents discovered at the current president, uh, Joe Biden's home as well. NPR's justice correspondent, Carrie Johnson. Thanks so much, Carrie. Happy to be here. The Oscar nominations are announced today. There's a variety of movies that could win from big budget blockbusters to the more indie art house fair. And NPR Culture Desk reporter Andrew Limbong has been following it all. Good morning. Hey, Steve. Okay, so who might get nominated for Best Picture? Okay, so you know there are 10 slots in this category, right? And in this year's crop of movies, like you said, it's like the mega blockbusters up against the usual Oscar Beatty type stuff. So some of the titles being tossed around include two sequels, right? One, we've got Top Gun Maverick and Avatar The Way of Water. Top Gun dominated the box office last year, and Avatar just spent this past weekend breaking $2 billion at the box office. Wow. And then on the relatively smaller scale, uh, other titles include the mind-bending universe-hopping movie Everything Everywhere All at Once. There's Tar. That's the Kate Blanchett movie about the controlling orchestra conductor. And for my money, the frontrunner is The Fablemans. That's the semi-autobiographical movie directed by Steven Spielberg about a young boy who's coming of age and learns a love of movies. Here's a clip of the boy's mom, Mitzi, played by Michelle Williams, helping him film his train set crashing. We're going to use daddy's camera to film it. Only crash the train once, okay? Then after we get the film developed, you can watch it crash over and over till it's not so scary anymore. (laughs) That's great. I missed a chance at the theater the other day to see The Fablemans watch something else. Would I regret that then? Well, according to the Golden Globes, you know, you did (laughs) because the Fablemans won for best drama movie. And speaking of the Globes, it's helpful to look at them to get a sense of who's in the running for the actor awards. You know, Michelle Williams is probably in the mix, as is Kate Blanchett. Michelle Yeoh won a Golden Globe for best actress in a musical or comedy for Everything Everywhere. In it, she plays Evelyn, a frustrated mother who has a hard time connecting with her gay daughter. Here's a clip of the two of them talking while they're cooking. You know... He doesn't have to stay. Who's he? Becky. Becky's a she. You know me. I always make that he, she. In Chinese, just one word. Ta. So easy. And the way you two are dressed, I'm sure I'm not the only one calling him he. I mean her, him. Anyways. Anyone who's seen the movie knows I'm like slightly underplaying the plot a bit because the movie gets a little out there. But if Yo does get nominated, this will actually be her uh, first Oscars nod in her decades-long career. What did Brendan Fraser do to get into the mix here? Yeah, a lot of people are talking about him and his role in uh, Darren Aronofsky's The Whale. In it, he plays an obese writing teacher who also has a hard time connecting with his daughter. It's a theme here, but go on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, The movie itself has gotten kind of a mixed reviews for its portrayal of fat people. But like even in the most brutal takedowns of the movie that I've read, critics have made sure to mention that Fraser's performance is as tender and humane as the script allows him to be. What about another big award, Best Director? 
Yeah, a lot of the movies we've talked about have their directors in the running. You know, you've got uh, Spielberg, uh, Todd Fields for Tar, the Daniels, Quan and Shiner for Everything Everywhere. There's also Baz Luhrmann for the Elvis movie. But I'm actually interested uh, in seeing if women get boxed out of this category at the Oscars, like they did at the Golden Globes. And you know, it isn't as if there wasn't a solid bench of movies directed by women this year, right? Both Sarah Polly's Women Talking and Gina Prince Bythewood's The Woman King got good reviews this year, but they don't seem to be in like the discourse as much as say Jane Campion was when she was nominated and won for Power of the Dog last year. Well, we'll see what the nominations bring. Andrew, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up next on Morning Edition, a judge in Georgia will hold a hearing today to decide whether to release the findings of a grand jury investigation into attempts to overturn the 2020 election. And in our next hour, a former member of Germany's parliament explains that country's reluctance to sending tanks to Ukraine. In your forecast, mostly clear skies today with temperatures in the upper 30s. It'll also be windy, partly cloudy tonight as we fall to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and low to mid-30s. Then another round of snow. About the time people are heading home from work, it'll last until about 11 p.m. and may bring as much as two inches of accumulation. Right now, it's 32 degrees in Boston at 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family. And because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. Now in business news, Cambridge-based Moderna plans to hire another 2,000 employees this year. The Boston Business Journal reports most of those hires will be based in Massachusetts. The announcement comes as Moderna plans to file for FDA approval for an adult RSV vaccine. The company also has a cancer vaccine slated to enter a late-stage clinical trial later in the year. Tufts Medicine plans to lay off 70 people at the end of this month. The healthcare system manages three hospitals in Greater Boston Tufts Medical Center, Melrose Wakefield Hospital, and Lowell General. Tufts says high labor costs are partially to blame for the cuts. It will also eliminate nearly 200 open positions. It's 7:45. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. A special grand jury has finished investigating the failed efforts by former President Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election in the state of Georgia. Now a judge holds a hearing today to decide what parts of the report to make public, if any. Georgia Public Broadcasting Stephen Fowler has been covering this story all along and is back with us once again. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, What was the purpose of this grand jury. It wasn't specifically to indict people, right? 
Well, so go back to early 2021, where Atlanta District Attorney Fonnie Willis announced she was looking into potential crimes after the failed attempt to overturn Georgia's presidential results. Right. Things like soliciting election fraud, giving false statements to governmental bodies, even racketeering. So last year, she requested backup from a special purpose grand jury that could do things like subpoena documents, seek testimony from witnesses, and recommend what charges to file. That's brought in everyone from South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham to Georgia's governor and secretary of state to a litany of lawyers that work for Trump's campaign. Okay, you said recommend charges. So they're not doing the indictments. They're just trying to find out what happened here. What did they focus on? Well, they focused on two main areas, efforts to reverse the results and claim Trump won, and then efforts to send slates of fake electors to have Congress say Trump won. On the former, we know there's a lot of interest in Trump's call urging the Secretary of State to, quote, find votes for him, and a pair of unofficial legislative hearings where Rudy Giuliani and others told state lawmakers how they could change the results using dubious claims of fraud. We also know, Steve, that the 16 Republicans that claim to be Georgia's presidential electors when they really weren't are considered potential targets of the election probe and this special purpose grand jury is interested in who organized them and why. So what determines how much of their findings we get to learn? Well, this is where the special and special purpose grand jury comes in. The special purpose grand jury gets more time to focus on just one issue as opposed to a typical grand jury that has multiple cases they've got to look at. But here's the thing. They can't actually issue indictments if they find wrongdoing. That's up to the district attorney. But think of this report as kind of a roadmap, spelling out who could be charged with what and any areas to investigate further. Basically, they can get it all the way up to that line without actually saying this person should be indicted. Now, Georgia state law says these reports should be made public if the jury wants them to, which they did. But the judge has some questions about other parts of state law that prevents these types of reports from naming names and potential crimes unless it's part of an indictment which this special grand jury can't issue. So today's report, we're going to have the DA's office, media outlets who want the full report published, and potentially targets who might be named in this report to make their case in this hearing, meaning resolution could take a while. There's one name in particular people will be looking to be named, Donald Trump. Well... It's hard to say if he's actually going to be named there or not. There were plenty of witnesses, including plenty of Trump allies who fought having to testify. But interestingly, Trump was never actually asked to appear before the panel. He has retained local attorneys in Georgia, though, who say they won't be participating today, mainly because they've never been part of this process. Their stance, they assume the grand jury found Trump didn't break any laws. That said, Fonnie Willis, the district attorney, could still issue an indictment against Trump based on mountains of public comments and other testimony gathered. Stephen, thanks so much for your reporting. Always appreciate it. Thank you. That's Georgia Public Broadcasting's political reporter, Stephen Fowler. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up. And later today at 11 is Radio Boston. And Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. Yes, shoveled out, ready for the <laughs> ready for the day. Um, we're going to do an Ask the Doctors today. Dr. Shira Darone of Tufts Medical Center, Dr. Benjamin Linus of Boston Medical Center are going to join us. We used to do these 
very regularly in the early days of the mm-hmm. pandemic. But now we find there comes a moment where there's enough in flux that we have questions again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everything from new research that suggests that pregnant women are particularly at risk for some health outcomes if they get COVID while pregnant. Um, the proposal by the FDA to potentially change the way we administer and think about vaccines. You know, are we at the endemic stage versus pandemic stage? Listeners had a group of so many questions came in so fast. Our texting group, if you join it at 617-766-6382, you can oh, you send did in that questions. Off the top of your head. Good I job. Know, right? Thank you. So <laughs> so anyway, lots of questions to doctors. Let's get an update on where we are. Okay. Thank you very much. That That's really important information. Thanks, That's Rupa. Radio Boston. Today at 11, it's 7.51. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers, and others who create Mornigation every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org slash cars. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Richard Haas is a veteran U.S. diplomat and now the head of the Council on Foreign Relations. He sometimes talks with audiences about a changing world. Whenever I was out speaking, the question would come up, What keeps you up at night? What worries you most? Is it China or Russia or North Korea, what have you? And increasingly, my answer was, no, it's none of those places, though they all worry me. What really keeps me up at night is the United States. So his latest book explores problems at home. It's called The Bill of Obligations. The title plays on the Bill of Rights, the Constitution's first 10 amendments. Richard Haas offers 10 obligations that he says go along with those rights. If everybody just focuses on his or her rights, then there's no room for compromise because rights very quickly become absolute. Your right to hold guns as opposed to someone else's right to safety. Your right not to get vaccinated or wear a mask. Someone else's right for public health. A woman's right to choose uh, the rights of the unborn. And I also thought we were losing the idea that we had some obligations both to one another as citizens and to our country. I've heard the idea that rights come along with responsibilities, but you choose this perhaps slightly different word, obligations. What's on your mind? I thought hard about it. Uh, It's not requirements. The idea of obligations are things we should do rather than have to do. These are not matters of legality, but this is in the realm of should or ought. And it's the things that we need to do in order to make the political system work for the society to remain peaceful, to get things done. You list a number of them here, remain civil, reject violence, get involved, stay open to compromise. But I want to ask about one in particular, be informed. How well informed do you think the public is on the issues that you're expert in? I made it the first obligation because I think in some ways it's foundational to all others. And one of the great ironies or contradictions of this moment is we're swimming in information. On the other hand, we're also swimming in in misinformation. Many of us have lost the ability to distinguish between facts and misstatements or to discern between what's a fact, what's a recommendation, what's a prediction, what's analysis. We don't really teach that in our schools. We may or may not teach critical thinking, but I want people to be critical consumers of information. Do you find people on complicated foreign policy issues especially 
giving you some information and you think, well, what you say is true. It's not strictly misinformation, but it's not very relevant or it's not the most important thing. Oh, absolutely. And I, you raise a really good point. Misinformation is not just things that are flat out wrong. It can be things that are also incomplete. It's a little bit like touching the skin of the elephant. And you could be accurate in the spot you touch, but you might be missing 99% of the reality of the elephant. But on virtually every issue, uh, I'm even more impressed or depressed by the degree of misinformation out there. You know, we can disagree, for example, on what to do about climate change, but we shouldn't be disagreeing about the fact that the, the Earth's temperature has gone up just over two degrees Fahrenheit. That's simply a fact. Again, how worried you are about it, what to do about it, that's where democracy should kick in. I wonder if there's a special problem with some of these complicated challenges because people do tend to vote on their interests and often have a very good idea of what their interests are in a particular situation, like, I don't know, their tax rate or whatever. But is there a special challenge in trying to explain what you think people's interests are in climate change or the war in Ukraine or U.S.-China policy or trade policy generally? Look, the more technical things get, it obviously gets more difficult, but I'm actually impressed how often people don't vote on their interests. And I don't mean this to be insulting, but one would have to have a pretty firm grasp of the issues. I mean, take the debate we're going to be having over the next six months on the debt ceiling. How is the average person to know what is their interest there? You hear all sorts of arguments. People don't make it clear that what the debt ceiling is, is simply ratifying spending and debt levels that have already been incurred. So I think one of the things people in your business have an obligation to do is provide explainers on the issues. And obviously schools have a similar obligation. Sure. We talk often about slowing the news down to try to figure out what really matters. I wonder if the misinformation sometimes goes the other direction. Is it possible sometimes that people in elite positions of power are just not very well informed about how their policies affect ordinary people? I think sometimes they're not very well informed simply because you enjoy a position of power doesn't mean you, you know a lot. I think in some cases people know better, but they don't act better. One of the things I do in this book is make the last of the 10 obligations, put the country first. At some point, we need character, what the founders of this country called virtue in our political leaders. I'm not sitting here naive. I don't expect a lot of these people who we see in public life to simply become virtuous and put the country before their own political ambitions. But that's then up to us voters. You know, politicians, in my experience, Steve, they may not be responsible, but they are responsive. So we as voters, we as citizens have to reward good behaviors and we have to penalize behaviors where elected officials are acting badly. It's one of the reasons I would love to see civics, well, at least what you and I used to call civics or social studies or citizenship and democracy taught in schools. I think it's actually a scandal that you can graduate from almost any four-year college and university in this country. And even though the courses are offered, they're not required. I think we've got to tell our story better. And then I believe people will be, will be more prepared to get involved and to understand that this democracy is something worth preserving. Do you think that you can trust states that oversee public schools in 2023 to even agree on what civics to teach and what to leave out? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, there's a bill that was introduced in Congress to have a national civics curriculum. And in it, one of the sentences in it, this does not mean in any way we're going to state what a national civics curriculum should be. <laughs> so then you end up with the crazy idea. I mean, it is kind of borderline crazy that young people in Arkansas 
would be learning a different national story than young people in Idaho or California. That, shall we say, defeats their purpose. But I do think, yes, I do think there's a chance, not that you necessarily give people the bottom lines on policies. Indeed, you avoid policy conclusions. But we do have certain facts about our history. We do have certain basic documents, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. My goal is not to drive Americans towards any particular policy. I'm much more interested in getting them to understand why democracy is of value and what does it take for a democracy to work as intended. The many books by Richard Haas include The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. Always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me back. Broadcasting the same facts to every state in this union. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldig. Upper 30s today under sunny skies. It may also be windy. Overcast tonight and mid-20s. Tomorrow the clouds stick around. It'll be in the mid-30s. Around about 5 p.m. we may begin to see snow. It's expected to last about six hours. Right now it's 33 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Maplewood Country Day Camp, family-run for 57 years with children's programs designed to teach life skills, putting the fun in fundamentals. MaplewoodYearRound.com. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Seven people have been killed in a rural area south of San Francisco. It's the third mass shooting in California in eight days. It's Tuesday, January 24th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, the community in Monterey Park, California, mourns as an 11th person dies from injuries into the weekend shooting at a dance studio. I'm very hopeful uh, of how we're going to recover, and I know we will recover, and we'll come out stronger. Also, what Massachusetts advocates want to see from Governor Healy's pledge to focus on affordable housing. And this hour... We were very, very excited the Senate is going to hold hearings and ask Ticketmaster what we hope are the very tough questions. It's the revenge of the Swifties. The Senate Judiciary Committee holds a hearing to learn why Ticketmaster botched ticket sales to Taylor Swift concerts. In sports, the Celtics lose sunny and in the 30s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. There's been a second shooting massacre in three days in California. Officials say a gunman killed seven farm workers and wounded an eighth in the coastal city of Half Moon Bay. It's south of San Francisco. NPR's Eric Westervelt reports the gunman is in custody and the motive is unknown. San Mateo County Sheriff Christina Corpus says seven people believed to be farm workers were allegedly gunned down by 67-year-old Chun-Li Zhao, a local resident who also apparently worked at the mushroom farm. He drove himself to a police substation where he was arrested without incident. Corpus says Zhao acted alone. A semi-automatic handgun was found in his car. David Pine heads the San Mateo County Board of Supervisors. Our hearts are broken. We are deeply grateful for law enforcement for their work this evening. But in the end, there are simply too many guns in this country. And there has to be a change. The Half Moon Bay killings follow the mass shooting at a Southern California dance hall over the weekend where 11 people were killed. 
Eric Westervelt, NPR News. The Senate Judiciary Committee will hold a hearing today examining the market for ticket sales to live events. This comes after Ticketmaster botched sales for pop star Taylor Swift last year and public sales had to be shut down. Senator Amy Klobuchar says the committee is looking into the company that owns Ticketmaster, Live Nation. She says they control the ticket-selling market and are suffocating competition. First, they have 70 percent of the major ticketing major concerts. That's a monopoly. Secondly, they also control the promotion of these events. And third, they own a whole bunch of big venues in competition with the small independent venues. And even with the independent venues they don't own, they often get into three, five, seven-year contracts so that no competitors can be involved. She spoke to NPR's Morning Edition. Germany says it will soon make a decision on whether German-made Leopard battle tanks can be sent to Ukraine. It will also decide whether other countries that own the German tanks can start training Ukrainian soldiers to use them. NPR's Rob Schmitz has more from Berlin. The announcement from new German Defense Minister Boris Pistorius came after a meeting with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, and it also comes amidst increasing international pressure on Germany to allow its popular Leopard battle tank to be exported to Ukraine after months of refusing to do so. Pistorius said Germany has no new position on the delivery of Leopard tanks, but he said other countries that have these tanks could begin training Ukrainian soldiers on how to operate them. Stoltenberg says after meeting with Pistorius, he's confident that Germany will soon make a decision on granting approval to send the German-made Leopard tanks to Ukraine as Russia gears up for a new offensive. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is holding firm in her effort to reform the city's next contract with its largest police union. The Boston Police Patrolmen's Association is pushing for arbitration to settle contract negotiations. In the past, arbitration was largely used to settle wage disputes. But the mayor tells WBUR's Radio Boston she'd prioritize other issues. We intend, if it has to go that way, to go in with The number of issues that include not just wages, but accountability, discipline, overtime, and the many issues that our residents have been pushing us to address. Among the changes, the mayor wants to limit the number of overtime hours an officer can work. She says talks with the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association are ongoing. The Boston Teachers Union says thousands of its teachers are owed money. The union says Boston Public Schools needs to retroactively pay teachers millions of dollars for pay increases that were part of a new contract. Union leaders say an audit on the district is needed to solve a growing number of payroll problems. The Boston Globe estimates BPS could owe affected teachers an average of $3,000. Professional athletes' unions are urging officials in Massachusetts to figure out how they'll protect players from harassment related to sports betting. Legal gambling on sporting events begins in the state a week from today. Lawyers for the Players Association told the Massachusetts Gaming Commission yesterday they're worried fans will threaten or attack athletes whose performances spoil a big bet. Attorney Jim Eisenberg argues that the commission should be ready to potentially ban betting on certain games or series of games. We think it's important that it be made clear that that threat, for lack of a better word, 
exists in extreme cases where the commission determines it's just not safe for the players to be playing because of threats, intimidation, and the like. Union representatives say police and sports leagues also have roles to play in limiting misconduct. Reservations to get ferry tickets to Martha's Vineyard for the summer are open this morning. The Steamship Authority reports some people are having trouble waiting in the virtual line to get their tickets. It's also reporting that the site is lagging once people get past the waiting room. The Steamship Authority website also had problems last week during the opening of reservations for the Nantucket route. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. The Celtics fell to the Magic 113-98 last night in Orlando. The Seas will visit the Miami Heat tonight. The Bruins are also on the road tonight. They'll skate with the Canadians in Montreal. Sunny today with a high in the mid to upper 30s. It might get a bit windy at times, partly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will be in the 20s. Increasing clouds tomorrow with a chance of snow in the afternoon. We could get another inch or so before it turns to rain. The high will be in the mid 30s. Right now it's 33 degrees in Boston at 8.07. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We have to take a moment to distinguish between two mass shootings, both in California, both in the last few days. One shooting came yesterday in Half Moon Bay. In that rural community, a man opened fire at a farm and at a plant nursery and killed seven people. Then there's the shooting at Monterey Park last weekend. The death toll there from a shooting at a dance hall is now 11. NPR's Nathan Rod is covering the massacre. He's on the line. Nathan, good morning again. Hey, good morning, Steve. How is this story evolving? Yes, slowly. You know, authorities ran through a search uh, that they had conducted of the 72-year-old deceased gunman's house yesterday. Uh, They said they found items to make homemade firearm suppressors and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. Uh, They did not, however, say they found anything that gave them a clearer understanding of this man's motives. Um, Here's Los Angeles County Sheriff Robert Luna. Did he plan this? Was it the day of? Was it a week before? What drove a madman to do this? We don't know, but we intend to find out. What more are you learning about the victims? So we started to get some of the names and ages of the victims. Uh, Others are still being withheld until their families can be notified. Um, We learned that all of the victims are older. They're in their 50s, 60s, or 70s. Uh, I actually talked to a couple who were there the night of the shooting yesterday outside of the dance hall. Uh, They'd come to pay their respects, and they said the place is very popular with middle-aged and local and older locals, um, lots of retirees. Uh, The names of these two folks are Tony and Jennifer. They did not want to use their last name out of respect for some of the friends they lost in the shooting. Uh, We actually walked over to an open window that looks into the dance hall where the shooting happened, and there are still balloons on the ground. Uh, Jennifer pointed to the far corner, and here's what she said. We were hiding in the corner, lying down. After the second round of the shooting, the first round, I was not aware it was like a gun shooting. What did you think? Do you think it was fireworks? I thought it was fireworks. Yeah, I thought it was fireworks. The second time he realized it was not a fireworks, so he pulled me down to the ground right at that corner right there. And everybody was lying down, hiding behind that door. 
remember, Steve, this happened on the Lunar New Year Eve. Um, and Jennifer said they escaped right outside of an emergency exit after that, but not after seeing multiple people who had been shot, and some of them were their friends. Nate, that's really powerful. You can almost imagine yourself with them down there yeah. on the floor trying to hide behind that door. Did they see the attacker? They did. And, you know, they said neither of them recognized him. There's been some questions to the sheriff's department, some reporting in the LA Times, other outlets. Uh, Congressman, uh, Congresswoman Judy Chu said that it's possible that this gunman had a relationship with the dance club. That has not been confirmed by investigators yet. Tony and Jeff and, or, and Jennifer, they both have gone to this place weekly, bi-weekly for years, and it's got a really rich community key, but they said they did not recognize him when they saw him in person or in the photos. That's got to be just one of many questions investigators still have. Yeah, I mean, motive is going to be top of line, and then also learning more about the victims. NPR's Nathan Rott is in Monterey Park, California. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Steve. Germany is under increasing pressure to send its leopard tanks to Ukraine and to allow other countries like Poland to do the same. Germany fears such a move could escalate the war, but there are also deeper cultural reasons behind its hesitance. After Germany's defeat in World War II, the country adopted a firmly anti-militaristic stance and set strict rules about how and when it exports weapons. For more on this, I'm joined by Stefan Liebisch, who represented the left party in the German parliament for 12 years. He joins us from Berlin. Good morning. Good morning, Leila, and hello, Washington, D.C. <laughs> so good. So nice to have you here with us. So let's start with these tanks. Why is this such a difficult decision for Germany? I can give you at least two and a half reasons. Uh, let me start with history. Yeah. So Germany started the worst war in human history that killed 60 million people, and most of them Russians. And after Germany's defeat in 1945, the Allied forces, and uh, especially the U.S. Americans, enforced pacifism for good reasons, and it worked. So until Germany's reunification 1990, no German soldier took part in the war. So West Germany was part of the NATO and did have armed forces, but they never sent soldiers abroad. And the same was true for East Germany, where I grew up. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was only 2009 when the first German soldier was killed in Afghanistan. So the German society is not used to such things. Has that changed, though, now with the war in Ukraine? Because a recent poll shows this is a really divisive issue and half of Germany's population is pro sending these tanks. Yeah, totally. Since February 24th, 2022, the beginning of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, everything is upside down here. So the German chancellor gave a speech a few days later announcing a Zeitenwende, a historic turning point with an increase of spending for defense up to 100 billion euros. We have never spent so much since the end of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And yes, the majority of people in Germany is sad and angry about Russia's actions. And they supporting the delivering of weapons. And actually, Germany delivered a lot of weapons. So Germany with UK is number two after the US in supporting the Ukrainian defense with tanks, with an air defense system, with bazookas. But the Leopard 2 is a different thing. Why is it different? So the Leopard 2 is one of the most modern tanks in the world. And that was would cross another red line and like the US, Germany tries to avoid to be directly involved in that war. 
So the German government uh, would like to see a decision by the US government that we do that together so that if the US wants us to do that, and I understand the reasons for it, then they should send their M1 Abrams tanks too. And uh, there's another reason uh, the German defense industry is afraid that uh, the US has an interest to replace the Leopards with their tanks. So there are economical reasons too. I want to ask specifically about your party, which has called to abolish NATO in favor of a collective security alliance that involves Russia. And your party's roots go back to the party that ruled East Germany in the Soviet era. So does that influence your view of sending leopard tanks to Ukraine? Of course, our party has uh, like two legs. There's a West German leg. It is a split off of the Social Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And you are right, there's this East German leg from the former Communist Party. Mm -hmm. But right now we have a lot of younger people uh, too. They are not so much um, influenced by that anymore. So we have divided opinions about the support of Ukraine. So some of our members are supporting it and some are more reluctant because of the past. And what is your viewpoint? So if our party is against illegal invasions, against breaking international law, then we should be very clear about Russia's illegal actions here too. And that happened, obviously. And so I think the country that is attacked by Russia right now Mm -hmm. should be supported. That is my opinion. Now, you grew up in East Germany, and I'd love to understand, are feelings toward Russia more complicated in that part of the country than they are in the West? Mm -hmm. If you look at the polls, there is a majority in East Germany against delivering of the Leopard 2 tanks. And uh, in West Germany, there's a majority in favor of it. I think you have to understand that 40 years of the German Democratic Republic, uh, these years have changed things. So all people in East Germany learned Russian in school. There were a lot of contacts with the Soviet Union and, of course, with Russian people too. So there are different and sometimes deeper connections in East Germany than in West Germany, Mm -hmm. and that may explain the higher reluctance. Stefan Liebisch, who represented the left party in the German parliament for 12 years. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Authorities in Memphis say they will release video of the police beating of a black man. His family saw the tape yesterday. An attorney for the family of Tyree Nichols asserts he was treated like a, quote, human pinata, their words. WKNO's Katie Reardon reports. As attorney Antonio Romanucci stood beside Tyree Nichols' grieving mother and stepfather at a church in downtown Memphis, he said during the multiple-minute video, Nichols was defenseless. It was an unadulterated, unabashed, nonstop beating of this young boy. Oh my God. Nichols was 29. Earlier in the day, law enforcement officials showed his family video of the January 7th traffic stop when officers pulled Nichols over for reckless driving. He was taken to the hospital after what officers initially reported as a foot chase and two confrontations. He died three days later, although no cause of death has been released. The Memphis Police Department has dismissed five officers implicated in the incident. Violations include excessive use of force and failure to intervene and render aid. All of the officers are black, which civil rights attorney Ben Crump said is immaterial. People have this uh, misnomer that we're uh, anti-white cops. No, we're anti-bad cops. 
Crumb compared the video to the 1991 Rodney King beating at the hands of law enforcement. Still, he said patience is in order as state and federal authorities consider criminal charges in the case. Crump said Nichols called out for his mother, Rovon Wells, at the end of the video. He had my name tattooed on his arm, and that made me proud because most kids don't put their mom's name. <laughs> she said her son was less than 300 feet from her home when officers seized him. According to his family, Nichols was a passionate skateboarder and a father of one who loved homemade cooking and photographing sunsets. Nichols and his stepfather, Rodney Wells, worked together at FedEx. Our son ran because he was scared for his life. He did not run because he was trying to get rid of no drugs, no guns, no any of that. He ran because he was scared for his life. And when you see the video, you will see why he was scared for his life. Local officials have pledged to share the video footage publicly once investigations allow, expected in the next two weeks. For NPR News, I'm Katie Reardon in Memphis. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, an expert discusses what's behind the sweeping layoffs in the tech sector and what the repercussions of those layoffs might be. It's 819. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. I'm Robin Young. Willie Mae Brown has a new exhilarating young adult book about how she grew up in Selma, Alabama in the run-up to the infamous Bloody Sunday March for Voting Rights. We knew that there was trouble out there, people disappearing and stuff like that. So I have no fear because Selma taught me a lot. It raised me. My Selma, next time, here and now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Harvard University's Peabody Museum and Warren Anatomical Museum have completed the process of repatriating the remains of more than 300 Native people. They belong to the Wampanoag communities in Mashpee and Aquina. The process took a few years, but it finally got done thanks to the work of tribal leaders. Visit WBUR.org today to learn how Harvard is working with other tribes to do the same for them. Mostly sunny and windy today with a high near 38. Tonight, partly cloudy and a low around 26. Tomorrow starts mostly cloudy with a high near 34. After about 5 p.m., snow is likely with less than an inch of accumulation expected by evening. We may see another inch of snowfall overnight before it turns to rain. Right now it's 33 degrees in Boston at 820. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from Capital One, with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. 
Capital One Bank, USA, N.A. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Stephen Skeep. Good morning. Who's really affected by layoffs in the tech industry? Some people work for Alphabet, the parent company of Google. Some work for Spotify, which announced layoffs just yesterday. They work for Twitter and many other companies. And in total, more than 56,000 people have seen their jobs cut this month alone. Arun Sundarajan says this change hits a variety of people. A lot of people think of it as people who work in computer science-related or engineering-related activities. However, the tech companies employ a wide variety of other people, ranging from customer service to financial analysts to tens of thousands of people who are screening content. Sundarajan is the Harold Price Professor of Entrepreneurship at New York University. He says these layoffs are a psychological blow for people who were fired and even those who were not. A number of large tech companies have grown at a breathtaking pace over the last five years. Google has more than doubled their workforce from 80,000 to 180,000 from 2017 to 2022. Um, And that pales in comparison to Meta that doubled its workforce between 2018 and 2022. Um, And they're all put to shame by Amazon that went from under 800,000 at the end of 2019 to over 1.6 million at the end of 2021. So they more than doubled in two years. There has been a tremendous feeling of security over the last five or six years. And so what has happened is that people have gone from feeling secure to having to deal with a high level of uncertainty, potentially for um, like, you know, the first time in their career. Oh, this is an interesting point because it's been observed in recent days that people in the tech industry who lose their jobs typically get rehired quickly. Do people have to worry if maybe that will not be true for them? Absolutely. I think that as more and more tech companies start to lay off workers, their ability to turn around and hire people immediately gets constrained. And as a consequence, the ease with which a tech worker might be able to find their next job starts to be constrained. And so in many ways, I think we are entering unprecedented territory at least for a year. Could it be longer than a year? It's unlikely in my mind. I think things will be back to some normal, some pre-2017 normal by 2024. What I have also been noticing is that not just tech workers, but most employees in America tend to depend on their job for things more than just income. You know, increasingly over the last decade, Americans have found community from their workplace rather than other community or religious organizations. I think that's part of why there is anxiety, even at the level of people who feel like, well, at worst, it's a year. I'm sure I'll find another job. But it's more than the income that is being lost. Do you have students who are graduating this year into this market you're describing? Yes, I do. What advice would you give them? Well, students tend to be optimistic, so um, I would feed off their optimism to say, well, 2023 is going to be a difficult year to graduate, especially from a business school, because hiring has shifted away from finance, being finance dominant like it was 15 years ago, to being more reliant on tech companies and tech consulting. But things will probably improve by 2024. Fundamentally, 
you have gotten a degree that um, has prepared you for life. Your first job is not the most important thing. So, you know, if you can afford it, take a year off, do something that you wanted to do before college and re-enter the labor market in 2024. I want to ask another question about that labor market. As tech firms lay off people, are the companies shrinking or deliberately evolving? By which I mean, are they getting rid of workers they think are redundant while perhaps also building up in other areas of the company? Um, that's a great question, and I think it's a mix. A lot of the layoffs that we're seeing over the last few months are simply a reaction to overhiring during the pandemic. And so some of the jobs that are being lost today or some of the positions that are being eliminated today are permanent. They just reflect the fact that, for example, commerce has shifted offline and back to being in person now. And so we don't need as many people as we needed in 2021. Mm -hmm. But in many specific cases, it's reflecting an evolution of the business model of the company. There are more and more activities that used to require humans that are increasingly being taken on by computers. It makes it easier. It makes it more palatable if they do this kind of workforce optimization at a time where layoffs are in the air, which is why some people sometimes conclude that layoffs are contagious. They're not actually contagious. It just like lowers the barriers and legitimizes the activity in the eyes of the executives if everybody else is doing it. Hmm. Well, now that raises one more interesting question, or at least interesting to me. People worry about artificial intelligence taking over human jobs. Is it likely that artificial intelligence will take over some of the jobs in the tech industry itself that is doing artificial intelligence? Absolutely. Some of the things that artificial intelligence is particularly good at are things that are actually dominant in the tech sector, like computer programming. It is actually much easier to create an artificial intelligence system that writes simple computer programs than it is to create one that has nuanced conversation the mm. way that chat GPT does. And so the tech companies that are creating this artificial intelligence are certainly going to be active consumers of it. Um, however, historically, when a new technology has caused human beings to be not needed for certain kinds of economic activities, the new technology creates a different kind of demand for human labor. And my expectation is that overall, that's going to be the case with artificial intelligence as well. Arun Sundarajan of NYU, thanks so much. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, Taylor Swift fans say they'll be protesting outside the U.S. Capitol today as the Senate Judiciary Committee holds a hearing focused on the ticket seller Ticketmaster and its dominance of the concert market. It's 8.29. Check back with WBUR throughout the day for updates on that story and the latest news. You can listen to 90.9, visit WBUR.org, or use the WBUR mobile app. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theater with Letters from Home, a true story exploring the intergenerational legacy of a Cambodian family through February 5th, MRT.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is in Berlin today, where he's been urging the German government to send military tanks to Ukraine. Speaking alongside Germany's defense minister, Stoltenberg said he's confident Germany will soon decide whether to do so. Stoltenberg also called on NATO allies to speed up deliveries of heavy weapons to Kyiv. We must provide heavier and more advanced systems so that Ukrainian forces are able to repel the Russian forces, not only to survive, but to win, take back territory and prevail. Ukraine's president has also been pressing NATO countries to send tanks and other heavy weapons to Kyiv, saying time is of the essence. A suspect is under arrest in Northern California following yesterday's deadly shootings at separate agricultural businesses in Half Moon Bay. They left seven people dead south of San Francisco. Investigators believe the suspect worked at one of the businesses. Dave Pine is president of the San Mateo County Board of Supervisors. He'd like to see Congress pass tougher gun laws. It is heartbreaking. It is discouraging. But it's also... uh call out to the federal government to do more on the federal level. Pine was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. This is NPR News from Washington. Authorities in Southern California say an 11th person has died of injuries sustained in Saturday's shooting at a dance studio in Monterey Park. That attack occurred during celebrations for the Lunar New Year. Investigators say the 72-year-old suspected gunman took his own life after the attack. Police in Iowa say three suspects are under arrest in what they're calling a targeted shooting in Des Moines. Two students at a school for at-risk youth were killed. An adult at the school was wounded. Microsoft says it's investing billions of dollars in the artificial intelligence startup OpenAI. NPR's Bobby Allen says the move follows the company's decision to lay off 10,000 workers. Microsoft is embarking on what it calls a multi-year, multi-billion dollar investment in OpenAI, the San Francisco research firm behind viral AI tools like image creator Dolly and ChatGPT, which is a sophisticated chatbot. The move is aimed at making a run at competitors like Google and Facebook parent company Meta by deploying the latest AI technology in more of its products, like its search engine, Bing. It comes just after Microsoft laid off about 5% of its staff, or 10,000 workers, in what the company described as a cost-cutting measure amid fears of a wider economic downturn. During the pandemic, Microsoft upped its headcount by 50%, a hiring pace the company now says was too aggressive. Bobby Allen, NPR News. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Somerville is trying to wipe out medical debt for some of its residents. The city plans to use federal pandemic funds for the initiative. Residents making 40 percent of the federal poverty rate or people whose debt is more than 5 percent of their annual income are eligible. The mayor needs to approve the proposal before it can take effect. 
Local civil liberties groups are asking education leaders in Massachusetts to fight efforts to ban books in school libraries. The ACLU of Massachusetts and the GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders point to coordinated efforts across the country to get books banned. They say many of those books focus on com- communities of color and queer communities. They also warn that any book banning efforts could result in legal challenges. A large number of people in central and western Massachusetts remain without power this morning following yesterday's snowstorm. The state reports more than 16,000 power customers are without electricity. The hardest-hit areas are Gardner, Winchenden, and Westminster. Those are the same areas that got the biggest amounts of snow. The National Weather Service reports more than six inches fell in those communities. Boston got just two inches. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. The Celtics' nine-game winning streak is over. They launched the Magic in Orlando last night. The final was 113-98. to The Seas will visit the Miami Heat tonight. The Bruins begin a six-game road trip tonight. They'll visit the Montreal Canadiens. And in your forecast, upper 30s. And windy today under mostly sunny skies. Tonight, clouds move in and temperatures fall as low as the mid 20s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, mid 30s, and still windy. Around about 5 p.m., we're expected to see another round of snow. It'll continue until about 11 and then turns to rain. In all, we should see up to two inches of accumulation. The rain continues into Thursday when it'll be warmer, around 50. Right now, it's 33 degrees in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. A hearing on Capitol Hill today will look at whether entertainment giant Live Nation, which owns Ticketmaster, has a monopoly on the ticketing industry. It comes after botched ticket sales for Taylor Swift's tour left millions of her fans with no tickets, and it highlighted the lack of alternatives. Leading the effort to regulate the concert ticket industry is Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. She chairs the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Competition Policy, Antitrust, and Consumer Right. Senator, welcome. Well, thanks, Layla. Great to be on. Um, so let's start, if you could just lay out why you think Live Nation has too much power. First, they have 70% of the major ticketing, major concerts. That's a monopoly. Secondly, they also control the promotion of these events. And third, they own a whole bunch of big venues in competition with the small independent venues. And even with the independent venues they don't own, they often get into three, five, seven-year contracts so that no competitors can be involved. So that is a trio of problems Mm. that leads to two things. One is what you've seen. It's not just Taylor Swift. It's 
Bad Bunny, BTS, Bruce Springsteen, Harry Styles, all of these artists have had issues with ticketing because there's no incentive when you're a monopoly. Secondly, fees, hidden fees. One recent government study found 27% of the ticket price was fees that you can't even figure out what they are from this company. Now, this is a problem, though, that goes back almost 30 years, even before the merger of Live Nation and Ticketmaster. Members of the band Pearl Jam testified before Congress in 1994 about similar issues. So what's different this time? What can you and your colleagues at the Senate actually do? You are correct, Layla. Pearl Jam, Pixies, many bands have tried to take this on. What's different right now is that this isn't a singular problem. Mm. We've seen consolidation in 75% of the industries in this country, and people are catching on. Taylor Swift fans sure caught on. So I I will get whatever allies I have to take on this case. What is in front of us now are solutions and a newly involved Congress. Done some stuff, but not enough. One, we just passed more merger fees for to, to help the antitrust enforcers, whether it's for tech lawsuits or cases with the ticket industry, and they're reportedly looking at this, the Justice Department. Mm-hmm. Secondly, these hearings, they give the public a chance to see what's going on, and they create under oath evidence for the investigation that is presumably occurring. And third, and just as importantly, my colleagues get educated. And then from there, we can do bills specific on ticketing. There are Republicans interested in this right now on fees, on the fact that they try to lock in on these multi-year contracts. All of those things are ripe for legislation. Now, you've outlined your concerns in a letter to the CEO of Live Nation. How has Live Nation responded? How has the CEO responded? Uh, Live Nation uh, did write us back with some of the answers. And then I also uh, spoke Uh, with the witness, the president of Live Nation, Mm -hmm. last week in preparation for this hearing. Um, I believe there are so many questions that I'm going to have and other members are going to have. And that's really about these fees. It's about how you can have these breakdowns. They said there's a cyber attack, but not all these artists involve cyber attacks. And these fees don't involve cyber attacks. So I think there are going to be many arguments that are going to be made. And good questions asked about why do you have to have a seven-year contract and why these venues are afraid to not use Ticketmaster Live Nation. Why? Because if they don't use them, then they're afraid they're not going to get the top acts that they promote. That's the truth. And we have a competitor, a smaller one, albeit much smaller, Mm -hmm. that is going to testify about what's really going on. Now, but a company doesn't just cede power when it has it. I mean, what can actually be done? (laughs) Uh, so that there is competition in this industry. Right. Well, that's why you have the Justice Department, because they, in the past, when you look at what's happened, when they've taken on these big cases, and there's been a paucity of it in recent decades, but now we're seeing a change uh, because the Biden administration has made this a huge priority. When they take these on, they have all kinds of tools. They can do everything from... Um, beefing up a consent decree that this company now operates under to implementing it and make sure that there's severe penalties to breaking up a company. Look what happened with AT&T. We saw lower long distance rates and we saw the cell phone industry take off after that company was divided to the point where a former chair said it was actually better for the company because they finally competed. Competition is good. Our markets and our economy are based on competition. If you don't have competition, 
you have things happen, like what happened with the Taylor Swift concert, because there is nowhere else to turn. Really quickly, in the few seconds we have left, how important were Taylor Swift fans in getting to this day? You mentioned you'll take any allies you can get. (laughs) They were very aggressive. But I will say we have been hearing this and pushing on this for years. We had a hearing just a few years ago. Senator Blumenthal and I have been involved in this issue. And Senator Lee, conservative Republican, is also very interested. So um, this has been going on for a while. But let's just say that I take allies, as I said, any of them. And when they put their concerns to music on uh, videos on social media, it does help. Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Layla. Okay, now this hearing is going to be an event. Like, Ticketmaster should be selling tickets because outside the hearing, some of Ticketmaster's critics will be protesting. Jennifer Kinder says they have T-shirts and slogans. Ticket swindle, ticket monopoly, Ticketmaster with the line through it, stay mad Swifties. One says Ticketmaster, and then underneath it, it says your reputation's never been worse. Kinder is an attorney representing Taylor Swift fans in a lawsuit. It accuses Ticketmaster of fraud and antitrust violations. We were very, very excited that the Senate is going to hold hearings and ask Ticketmaster what we hope are the very tough questions. So critics organized this protest. So that Ticketmaster sees us as they're entering the building, the senators see us, and everyone knows that we're not going away. Organizer Melanie Carlson says they have the people on their side. Everybody hates Ticketmaster. So (laughs) it's the most nonpartisan, neutral movement in the whole world, probably. A movement that even includes non-Taylor Swift fans. Are there such people? And I've been paying attention for two years now. So I'll see different fandoms get mad at Ticketmaster, and I've been trying to unite them for like at least a year and a half to say Mm -hmm. we have a common cause because a lot of them fight like Beyonce fans will fight with or Cardi or you know whatever. Court hearings in the lawsuit are scheduled for March the same month Taylor Swift's new tour begins. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, WBUR's Simone Rios talks to advocates who hope that Massachusetts Governor Moore Healy's early focus on affordable housing will lead to action on Beacon Hill. I think there is a sense that something will change because I think people are thinking about comprehensive legislation, comprehensive change, a big push. In your forecast, mostly clear skies today with temperatures in the upper 30s. It'll also be windy, partly cloudy tonight as we fall to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and low to mid-30s. Then another round of snow about the time people are headed home from work. It'll last until about 11 p.m. and may bring as much as two inches of accumulation. Right now, it's 33 degrees in Boston. Now, in business news, the owners of Yankee Candle say they'll close the company's corporate offices in South Deerfield. Deerfield. The Atlanta-based Newell Brands say the closure is part of a 13 percent cut to its global workforce. That includes layoffs for retail workers and professional staff. Those began yesterday. The corporate office closure will not affect Yankee Candle's scent lab in Deerfield that opened in 2019.
Cambridge-based Apernoia Therapeutics is going public in a deal worth $280 million. The biotech is studying drugs for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. The deal is with Florida-based Ross Acquisition, which is owned by former Trump administration official Wilbur Ross. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts. Passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. If there's one thing people who work on housing can agree on, it's that Massachusetts is facing a crisis. State officials warn homelessness is on the rise, and experts say the state needs hundreds of thousands of new homes to keep up with demand. Now, Governor Moore Healy is promising to elevate housing to the top of her administration's priorities. WBWAR's Simone Rios reports. At her inauguration earlier this month, Governor Healy laid the groundwork for a comprehensive housing policy. If we want Massachusetts to be a home for all, we need to build more places to live. And we need to make sure those homes are within reach. It's still early for the administration, but Healy's first step is creating a cabinet-level housing secretary whose job it will be to lay out a broad strategy. Vanessa Calderon Rosado heads a nonprofit in Boston's South End with almost 700 affordable housing units. She says it's about time housing gets its own secretariat alongside climate, transportation, and public health. Because that will allow the governor to really firsthand hear and have a pulse on what's going on with housing development across the state, but also it will help integrate housing like we're doing here in Villa Victoria with every other aspect of state government. Calderon Rosado is calling for a roadmap to fix the state's housing shortage, which the administration pegs at roughly 200,000 units. That's something we can expect from a housing secretary, says Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll. While a statewide housing plan has yet to be written, Driscoll points to an array of regional and local plans as a starting point. This new housing secretary will be charged with bringing those plans together to create one roadmap with ideas, suggestions, strategies, ways that we can partner with both private sector builders, public sector builders, and local you know, jurisdictions to create the housing we need. Driscoll says the new administration will continue to push housing policies from Governor Charlie Baker's administration. That includes the Housing Choice Initiative, which offers financial incentives for communities to build more housing, and the MBTA Communities Law, which requires cities and towns to build more multifamily units around public transit. But Driscoll says the administration's ultimate aim is to make sure everybody who wants to live in the state has good housing options. Of course, that's our goal. But I want to really put a pin on how difficult that is. We are not building enough housing right now, and we have not been building enough housing to meet the needs of the people who live here for the last decade. Asked how the administration will assess its progress on housing, Driscoll says look to the number of units produced in the coming years and whether homelessness levels start trending down. Driscoll says while affordable housing is key, the development of middle-class housing is a top priority. And landlords want their voices heard when it comes to new housing policies from the new governor. 
I'm hopeful that Governor Healy will be really interested in getting all different voices at the table. That's Doug Quattrochi, head of the trade group Mass Landlords. Really, when we have tough conversations with different viewpoints, like you got the landlords on the one side and renter advocates on the other, I really believe together we can come up with good solutions, good compromises to people. One item on the wish list, Quattrochi wants the state to create a training program so landlords can carry out basic plumbing and electrical work that now legally requires a professional. He says a big reason housing is so expensive is sky-high labor rates. And he hopes Healy and Driscoll will advocate for these kinds of changes and quickly. Everybody enters office with this kind of optimism that they can do everything. What Governor Baker was saying on the way out was basically paraphrased, the job grinds you down. So I hope Governor Healy is able to do some really good housing work early before kind of like the grind sets in. Healy's first year in office could be a big one for housing laws, says Annette Duke, a housing attorney with the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute. I do think despite the fact that nothing has happened in the last two sessions that's big on housing, I think there is a sense that something will change um, because I think people are thinking about comprehensive legislation, comprehensive change, a big push. Duke points to several legislative items now pending. They include sealing records so renters don't face discrimination for past evictions and more opportunities for tenants to buy their buildings when they go up for sale. But all that will depend on lawmakers and the priorities of the soon-to-be-created housing secretary, who many say can't come fast enough. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simon Rios. This is 90.9 WBMR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report takes a look at the world of extreme fitness and its use of steroids to help people reach their fitness goals. It's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org sponsorship. Waiting for the Amazon driver to lower your blood pressure and cholesterol? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. I'm David Brancaccio. Amazon is trying again to make inroads into the healthcare business. This time it's launching a prescription drug discount program. It'll be for generic medicine, and you have to subscribe in two different ways. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. Amazon's latest healthcare offering is called Rx Pass, a plan that makes available some 50 commonly prescribed generic drugs for one flat rate, $5 a month, plus the cost of a prime membership. No need for proof of insurance. The program complements Amazon Clinic, a limited virtual doctor's office, and Amazon Pharmacy, 
Other efforts to disrupt the healthcare business have failed. The company shuttered Amazon Care, a hybrid virtual in-home healthcare service, and Haven, a joint venture with Berkshire Hathaway and JP Morgan, which was supposed to figure out how to reduce healthcare costs. In addition to the new prescription drug program, Amazon is also trying to close a $4 billion buyout of One Medical, a primary care group. Federal regulators are probing that deal. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. After the Nasdaq stock index rose a vivid 2% yesterday, with market players betting interest rates won't have to keep going up all that much more, today Nasdaq futures are down 8 tenths percent and S&P futures down 6 tenths percent. A Justice Department antitrust lawsuit against Google for the way it uses its advertising business could come as early as today. Reporting by Bloomberg News suggests this is coming. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. And by Vantage Score. Vantage Score's credit scoring models help expand financial inclusion by leveraging predictive analytics at VantageScore.com. We watch a documentary film a month on Marketplace themes, and you're invited to watch along and or follow along by signing up free for our Econ Extra Credit Weekly at Marketplace.org slash newsletters. This time it's a vintage movie, the bodybuilding one from 1977, Pumping Iron featuring Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno. One became governor of California. The other became an international TV star playing the Hulk. In Pumping Iron, we're led to believe Arnold is a cunning villain as he competes for another win as Mr. Olympia. Now, what the documentary does not mention is the use of anabolic steroids to build big muscles. Schwarzenegger in later years admitted he used this pharmaceutical enhancement back when these were legal. Without prescription, they've been against the law for more than 30 years in the U.S., Steroids can have serious health effects, and steroid-enhanced bodies can project to the culture false senses of what a normal body should be. We connected with Stephen Mayville. He's a psychologist based in Reno who's done work centered on muscle dysmorphia and steroid misuse. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Dr. Mayville, have you seen Pumping Iron? I mean, you must have seen it some years ago. Have, have you re-looked at it? It's been a long time, but certainly that's one of the iconic you know, bodybuilding uh, films and and I think you know one of those one of those films that kind of perpetuates that myth of hard work. You know when these guys aren't talking about what they're doing <laughs> behind the scenes. In fact, years later, another documentary came out called Raw Iron, which looked at the making of the original Pumping Iron. And Arnold Schwarzenegger in the later documentary is like, yeah, use steroids, but that took a long time for that to become clear, right? Oh, absolutely. And he was a promoter for years of, you know, what people would refer to as more like natural products like protein powder. Uh, and certainly even as an adolescent looking at that, you're going, dang, if I want to get stronger, I want to put on some muscle mass. This is all I got to do, you know, some hard work and a little protein powder. And uh, before you know it, this is what I'm going to be looking like. <laughs> and, uh, and obviously it came out later that that's not at all true. Think about it. Steroids have been illegal without prescription in the U.S. since 1990. Yet there are people selling images, selling products based on quietly using steroids. Yet there doesn't seem to be legal liability to boasting of the effects <laughs> if you haven't said out loud that you got there because you use steroids. I guess that's a place that needs to be thought about more closely. 
Sure, absolutely. You know, certainly there have been, to my understanding, watchdog groups that have, have identified that, you know, some social media platforms are complicit in encouraging, you know, essentially advertising for illegal activities. And obviously the consequences of that on an individual can be devastating. I mean, if we just look at human behavior, short-term consequences are more powerful than the longer-term consequences. So if you can do something right now that enhances the way that you feel and in your mind, how you look, you know, that will outweigh these consequences that you see potentially decades later with, you know, organ failure, cancers, numerous health problems. So it is a serious issue and it's something that certainly should be looked at in terms of how do we apply consequences to people or companies encouraging illicit behaviors. What's that term from economics? Hyperbolic discounting. This is the idea that it's very clear the near future, but the further future is very murky and blurry, and it has big consequences, for instance, for retirement planning, personal finance. But you're saying the effects of steroids is the same way, where you're like, oh, wow, I could be ripped soon, and if I get sick from this, it'll be much later, and that's a problem. Yeah, and uh, you have a number of people that are able to calculate those risks in a way. I mean, maybe they're discounting the potential that they're the one that's going to experience these long-term consequences. But they go ahead and they'll acknowledge like, hey, I'm willing to make this trade off, whether it's professional sports or professional bodybuilding. There's a very significant number of individuals when they've done research on this that are willing to say, hey, I don't I don't care what these consequences are. I know what they are. If I can win right now, if I can do these things to make me successful right now, then so be it. Well, I think there's a lot of ignorance about these consequences for some, there are quite a few people take these calculated risks knowing that down the road that this could happen. Dr. Stephen Mayville, licensed psychologist based in Reno, Nevada. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Just one resource if you're worried about someone with body image issues is the Eating Disorders Hotline. Search National Eating Disorder Association and the phone and text hotline numbers come right up. Our producers are Katie Barnfield, James Graham, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder, and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Garretson-Morby. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Upper 30s today under sunny skies. It may also be windy. Overcast tonight and mid-20s. Tomorrow the clouds stick around. It'll be in the mid-30s. Around about 5 p.m. we may begin to see snow. It's expected to last about six hours and bring up to two inches of accumulation. Then rain on Thursday morning and a warm-up to the low 50s. Right now it's 34 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. More and more organizations are requiring diversity, equity, and inclusion training, but is it effective, and how do we measure whether it works? If I try to go into an ecosystem from the top down and say, this is the truth from on high, without their input, it's going to fail. Because that's just not how ecosystems work. I'm Anthony Brooks. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.